This episode of the Major Issues Podcast is brought to you by Patreon.com slash CBC Clubhouse. Comic Book Click is on Patreon, guys. For as little as $0.10 cents a day or $3 a month, not only can you help keep the lights on here at Comic Book Click headquarters, but your donation gives you access to exclusive content like CBC commentaries, polls where you can choose what content we cover next, and special behind-the-scenes footage of things here at Comic Book Click. Visit Patreon.com slash CBC Clubhouse today and become a Patreon. And remember, you, yes you, are worthy. everybody out there in comic book land my name is george serrano aka the don and if you're listening to this you can only be here for one reason that's a brand new episode of the major issues podcast brought to you by comicbookclick.com and as always i am never alone sir please introduce yourself it's the man the myth the legend dan the comic book man dan the comic book man is here in studio and we are here to talk about a troubled production as creators ourselves We know how hard it is to create content, create content passionately, create content effectively, create content that spreads the message that we want to spread. As a matter of fact, the Major Issues podcast is over three years old at this point, and um, we've lost episodes, full episodes, three hour, two hour long episodes. three plus hour episodes. Um, And it has broken each of our hearts. There's almost nothing like putting your time and effort into something that you believe will be released and other people will get to see it and have their opinions on it. There's almost nothing worse than that thing ultimately not being released for all that time and effort and elbow grease to seemingly go to nothing. Uh, we we just saw, you know, this Zack Snyder renaissance come up, right? Where, yep. where people are coming out of the woodwork to quote unquote or hashtag restore the Snyder. All of a sudden he has fans. <laughs> well, people at the very least want to see this director's vision seen uh, to, I guess, its completion. Although, according to Warner Brothers, that completion took place when they he finished um, Justice League. So, that whole ground swell of support we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about Zack Snyder's Justice League. Just this idea that people were so, you know, angry that the film that they ended up getting was basically a hodgepodge of corporate synergy and we didn't get as bad or good as you think Zack Snyder is as a filmmaker we what we got in 2017 just wasn't his film you know yeah and you can see that anybody that like actually likes Zack Snyder that that can tell his kind of style his kind of storytelling you know 100% that 2017 Justice League was not Snyder's movie at all If, if you line up that Justice League with Watchmen 300, even Sucker Punch and Dawn of the Dead. Complete different movie, different style. That's not even his color palette. Right. That man does not stick to that kind of color palette. It, so you have, you had that. And I think with seeing the Snyder Cut after the fact, we have proof that maybe you shouldn't meddle with certain directors and, and their stuff. Um, Recently, David Ayer's been very vocal about his version of Suicide Squad. Have you been seeing that go around? He's been talking to people and I being like... I think he's like, been saying that for a very long time now, actually. I mean, he said it from the jump, but yeah. I'm saying that this this new, you know, Snyder Cut stuff has re, uh, reignited that whole conversation in my eyes. 
Well, yeah, because um, he definitely had more of Joker planned in Suicide Squad. Then you can watch the first Suicide Squad, and you can definitely tell these are two different movies. They're just two different. That ending has nothing to even do with the rest of the movie. Like, well, what? they were always talking about all the craziest things that uh, Jerry Leto did as Joker, but there's almost no evidence of it in the film. He's very scarcely in it. Um, a- Ayer went so far to say, like, he wrote a heartfelt um, film that he felt that the studio basically tried to turn into Guardians of the Galaxy, and in trying to do so kind of ruined the film then funny enough they hires the guy <laughs> who actually did go into the galaxy to come in and oh do that's it. just a knife right in the back of yeah. air and air could you imagine that like could you imagine coming in and they're like we know you're good at what you do but can you make that guy's movie can you make that guy's movie for us you know Try and, to copy and then when it doesn't can. work literally seeing that guy in the hallway get you know sign a contract <laughs> Come and do, do his version anyway. It's got to be so heartbreaking. Um, oh, I'd have quit. I'd have quit mm, comic book movies in general. I'd just go make a horror movie or, or a drama or something. I'll go make movies for TV Land and Lifetime before I ever get disrespected like that. I don't know if you remember, and I'm not one to defend the man, but um, it was said in multiple reports that the production of Age of Ultron broke Josh Whedon. That he had to leave Twitter. That he was stressed out about all the mandates from Marvel Studios as to what to include. Because that film also set up for a bunch of other films. Uh, and so he had his script, plus what they needed, plus his obligatory falling on girls' boobs moments, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and so, yeah, he, like, fizzled out <laughs> at the end of that. Uh, damn near broke him, the production of that film. We've heard the horror stories about Fan Forstick and Josh Trank um, having his film. Uh, and he like said like I think the day that Fan Force came out, he's like, "What that whatever that is is not my movie. Uh, you'll probably never see my movie. My movie was good, you know. That movie is." That's isn't. what's so funny is most of the people that that their movies don't end up as the movie. They always say, "Oh, mine was actually good. Mine was actually good." And sometimes I like, think can you, you get trust? to no, I think you get to because there's no who's gonna argue with you. You can't yeah. see it, yeah. which is why this Snyder cut thing was so such a big deal. Because if it was bad, everyone who had been yelling for it, and it's still not perfect by people's standards, you know, but everyone who had been yelling for it would have looked very dumb. Oh, if this was worse than, if the, it was than, worse than the 2017 one? Woo! Right, at the blowback. Oh, I don't even want to think about how poor Yogi would have been. People would not have lived down the blowback from that. So, I, so they get to sit in the back and be like, well, seeing as you're never going to see it, mine was 10 times better. Mine was Oscar award winning. There's mine only was... one person I could literally in my soul. There's only one person that I can trust who said that's not my movie would actually be right that their movie is better. And that's Edgar Wright for Ant-Man. Uh, I want to, I know Edgar you're Wright. Yeah. That's another, uh, that's another one. Edgar Wright brought in to do Ant-Man and then and they fired him halfway creative through Creative differences, quote unquote, and then they're gone. Uh, not comic book, but they had the the Lego guys come in for a solo. Oh, Tim and Tim, Tim, not uh, Lord and Miller. Lord and Miller to come do solo. Yup. And then they said, "Oh, you guys are making it too funny. You guys are doing too much creative stuff." Right. And like... so they take they kick those guys out, put Ron Howard in. Oh, God. And Ron that's Howard. like one of the first uh, Star Wars movies to kind of sort of flop. And that was like a a, a red light of like. Okay, I think that so was. Just... I think that is the only like like a budget not budget uh, grossing wise that yeah. is. Star Wars only flop. Star Wars has never broken more than triple their budget. Yeah. This was their first actual flop. 
because Ron Howard. Like, can you guys even name a Ron Howard movie that's not Apollo Eleven? We were watching um, uh, what you call it? Uh, Happy Days the other day, <laughs> and I and I was like, that guy right there is like, one day, screw all of you. You're all laughing at Richie now. <laughs> there'll the be worst... no laughing at. There'll be no laughing when I'm said when I'm done with this. The worst part is his daughter made directed three of the best Mandalorian episodes. There you go. It might be in the butt. Like, it might, like, yeah, it's it, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, we also have to talk about the Donner cut of Superman. You know, Superman two. Uh, Richard Donner was oh, taking yeah. off of production of that film. Richard Lester was brought in to finish it, and then for years, people campaigned to get the Richard Donner cut out, and it now exists. The Richard Donner cut of this of that film exists. So while DC has two. You know, has released two, you know, big director's cut films for flagship franchises and IPs. Marvel's kind of never done that. Marvel's nope. kind of never been nope, like, nope, nope. you know what? Here is that vision. Here is that, you know, thing there. And when I when we were sitting down last week talking about the worst of the worst, and we were sitting down the week before talking about directors that didn't get their just due and you know mostly Jack Zack Snyder but the idea of a director knocking their film out there I knew what we had to tackle this week oh, I of knew course. that the perfect combination of both of those two topics is the documentary Doomed the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four and oh my god you're, you're fresh so off sad. the you're fresh off the boat if you will uh, uh, when it comes to the documentary did you watch this You've yesterday before it, I came over I've seen it twice I've seen it three times I oh, saw it snap. once a long time ago out of curiosity and loved it uh, loved just the just the weird tale of it. Yeah. Then the second time was in review for this, and the third time was to take notes. So uh, uh, that uh, I that so you was had to watch it twice in a row, basically. Yeah, I saw it Friday and then yesterday. So um, yeah, I, I literally I'm, threw it on this. Like I hopped right in the shower. I threw it on. I took about a good like thirty minute shower, and I watched the first thirty minutes and. I realized that I wasn't taking a shower when I was watching this. You were just watching. I was this, standing this there, and I'm because I have this little um uh, a towel rack that's yeah. like a horizontal. So there's just the floor rug, the bathroom rug is just hanging over. So I have a nice little base to put my phone. So I'm just standing there, letting the hot water hit my back, mm. and I'm just like, "Yo, what are what is going on? That's funny. What is this? Without without giving too much away, uh." Was there anything up front that, that sticks out in your mind about this whole thing? Oh, this movie, uh, this documentary has finally, finally solidified about, th- what, 15 years of hate for one producer. <laughs> I yeah. will go on record. I've said it since Spider-Man 3. I hate Avi Arad. Avi Arad, almost every single Marvel movie that you can think of that flopped, he was there executive he was there kevin feige yeah ghost rider flopped <laughs> spider-man 3 flopped electra flopped daredevil flopped this man has produced more flops than ooey bull but you know what he was also a part of both animated series and i think that got him a lot of uh what are they called uh credibility like a goodwill yeah goodwill i guess that i guess that is it that it got him good that was one of those were the first two marvel properties to take off like those two animated series the spider-man one and the, and the yeah, x-men like, one changed the game like toys and stuff like that changed the game for marvel before then they had no real live action thing to talk about they talk about that in the documentary how they only had that that hulk film they had the hulk film they had the punisher film uh i don't even think that 
at that point did the Captain America movie even come out? Yeah, yeah 1990. 1990. <laughs> yeah, so they had Captain they had America terrible film. Captain America, terrible Punisher, terrible ja- I think the Japanese 78 Spider-Man. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. really bad like and I've noticed this is what I noticed going through this documentary is that everybody wants to talk their talk like oh Marvel makes the better live action movies. Marvel makes the better live action movies. Marvel makes but at the end of the day Marvel also flops more live action movies than DC. Well, they were definitely not that that's the reason why and I guess this is this is the time to talk about it. That's the reason why I get very upset with the current standing of DC films because in my opinion they had about a 30 year head start <laughs> considering how popular longer. Well, I'm saying considering how popular the Superman film was, right? Yeah. Uh that comes out, you know, uh, mid 70s. So you have that film and then the Superman franchise, that kind of falls off. So that's their fault because they had it. Yes. Then it fell off. By the way, last Superman film, Roger Corman production. <laughs> Remember Superman 4? Yes. It's a Roger Corman it production. It is a Roger Corman production. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that, you know, fantastic there. Uh, or a canon film, I should say. Uh, and then you have Batman. And Batman's going gangbusters. And then Batman falls off a clip. You know what I'm saying? So, like, they... they dropped the ball twice in the 80s with Superman 4 then the 90s with Batman and Robin then they got the Dark Knight trilogy and we're back to gangbusters DC's killing it Marvel comes out with their first MCU film when the second Nolan film comes out the same exact year yes 2008 is when we see Iron Man and And Dark Knight Dark Knight at the same time and both of those films changed the trajectory of how those franchises were gonna go DC saw Dark Knight and was like, oh my God, we have to do this for everybody. And MCU landed Iron Man. They were like, okay, I think this this can be something. But with up until that point in 2008, like you said, a good 30, 35 year uh, head start. X-Men films started getting good in 2000 and stuff. And that was a low period for DC, I guess you would say. Is anything after Batman and Robin and before Batman Begins, those eight years or whatever. Yeah, because no, yeah, Batman and Robin was what ninety seven. Yeah. So then two thousand and five, eight years. So about yeah, good eight years. And so yeah, there is not many DC movies between Batman and Robin and uh, Batman, Batman Begins. begins. Yeah. But that's still, but still, Marvel finally now we're in the race. Now yeah. we're in the running. DC has been making movies. There was a Batman movie in the 40s yeah. that this channel has to cover one day. It's yeah, like a 10-hour... Yeah, I think there's also an original OG black and white Captain America thing we could probably... There's like a... Th- yo, that Batman movie is like 10 hours. It's on YouTube. Ah. Oh, I swear like to God, probably, it's like, like... It's probably a serial then. It, yeah. it, that's exactly what it was. They were releasing it like weekly in theaters. Yeah. And it's crazy. So now Marvel is finally in the running. We have our foot on the ground. And what happens? X-Men 1. Not as big as you think it's, it, it was. Spider-Man? Amazing. Blows everybody out the water. This w- is what we want. I would say both for- first Spider-Man and X-Men films were probably really like well received, and then again both of them fell off a cliff. And then we got like right when they were falling off At the their cliff, thirds. we got we got the Fantastic Four. You know the Fox Fantastic Four. Because I middle saw of that, that one in theaters. In both the middle of, of all that is the maligned Elektra and Daredevil. You understand? So it's like, and in the middle of that, you have Catwoman two. That's now they also were dragging their like, feet. Oh my! They were God. dragging their feet. So many uh, flops in the two two thousand saw more flops in comic book movies than any other period in history. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and you could, and that's Marvel and DC. You're not counting like Dark Horse stuff, or you know, like the random the Spirit, <laughs> like random random stuff like that that probably didn't set Hell, the world I'd, on fire. I'd say freaking the Phantom was better. You know, madness. But we'll get... To, we'll I have to cover that as well. Yeah, we do. Ironically, we will not be 
actually covering the Roger Corman Fantastic Four film because I want to sit back and enjoy that. I feel like covering both that and this would not that would give have been us too much. much atten- well, also wouldn't have given us enough attention on either one. Yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. both of them are both subjects are extremely important and interesting on their own. So we're actually talking about Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman Fantastic Four, a 2015 documentary film about the troubled production of the unreleased Fantastic Four film from 1994. The documentary consists interviews of individuals who are closely related to the making of the film, including the cast. Uh, So these are the list of people that were part of this interview. And I was actually very surprised that they got as many of them as they were able to. But um, we have Alex Hyde White as Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, Rebecca Stab as Sue Storm Richards, Invisible Woman, Jay Underwood as Johnny Storm, The Human Torch, Michael Bailey Smith playing Ben Grimm, Carl, I hope I'm saying this right, Cyphalio as The Thing, Joseph Culp as Victor Von Doom, a.k.a. Dr. Doom, and Kat Green as Alicia Masters. But other notable people that they were able to get as part of this interview include Oli Sasson, the director, Mark Sykes, the casting director, or the casting assistant, I'm sorry, Glenn Garland, the editor, John Volick, a co-founder of Optic Nerves Studios, which is like, that's who did the makeup for the film. Jonathan Fernandez, Vice President of Marketing at Concord Human Horizons, which was a distributor. Chris Gore, the only on-set journalist, which should have told people something for the production of this film. Sean Howe, the author of Marvel Comics The Untold Story. Lloyd Kaufman, President of Trauma Entertainment Productions, uh, which is the distributing company who did Toxic Avenger. And last but not least, the man himself, the very soft-spoken Roger Corman. Who gets like two minutes. But he's, he seems so polite and soft-spoken, but he probably knows where all the bodies are buried. Oh, he knows. He yeah. knows the secrets. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into some of this stuff, stopping at, obviously, the interesting points. So uh, the documentary starts off by telling us that in 1992, Bern Eichinger, <laughs> a German producer and friend of Roger Corman's, came to him in the fall of that year, fall of 92, and said that he had a problem that he needed help with. In the 80s, Eichinger obtained the film rights to the Fantastic Four and the Silver Surfer, decades before making movies based on Marvel Comics, which was trendy. He also approached Lloyd Kaufman and his production company as well. He was trying to make a Fantastic Four movie on the cheap and legit asked Corman if he could do it for $1 million. Now, Daniel. Now, the thing about this is that I think that people... We'll sit, hear that, and they'll be like, well, a million dollars in 1992. Yeah, no, no. That's not how any of this works. For reference, the completely animated Lion King had a budget of $48 million. Jesus Christ. But let's talk live action. Let's talk superheroes. Let's talk a film with probably very little special effects. Batman, 1989, $45 million. $45 million. Yeah. 45 times yeah. the budget for the Fantastic Four film. Uh, so that is absolutely ridiculous. Um, both Trauma and Corman were known for their very low budget productions. Uh, when being told that they would do their best on a limited budget, Burnt said he didn't care so long as they were able to shoot as soon as possible. Another red flag. Real quick, adjusted to inflation, $1 million in 1992 is 
So still not eight hundred and eighty six dollars and forty nine cents. Not even fifty cents. So still not. It's $2 not even million. two million. Not even two million dollars. So this thing was done for one point eight million dollars of nineteen ninety two money. And the thing is, a lot of the Corman stuff, from my knowledge, is like schlock horror and schlock sci fi, and that stuff you could always. You know, blood is what is is yeah. corn syrup and and red uh, dye, and then I think so, yeah. And then anything sci-fi is just wrapped in aluminum foil. So that's open and shut case. They even do said that it though that, that that they went that they had to do sh- that they had to shoot two movies on this on lot, lot on the same and lot. They changed out so, some of the set. So they things, went yeah. from yeah, and they they I think the I think uh, what's his name? Uh, Sasson or O'Shea? Yeah. Oh, Oli, Oli, Oli Sasson. He said yes. that they that they literally had to. That the uh, staple fucking Dixie cups to the wall, yeah. spray painted blue to make it look like just a so futuristic it could just look setting. Look like weird knobs. <laughs> it's like what? Stuff like that. Yeah. what? <laughs> Dixie, bro, you guys are are have more budget than we do. This, Dixie cups. This film was done by. They talk about it. It was done by fall of ninety three. It's it was it was announced like they started talking about it in fall of ninety two. Yeah, it's, in, it's, directed it's impossible and shot to have in a, a year. They did it all. I mean, it wasn't great, but they did it. <laughs> and I think most movies take 18 months to do. At yeah, least probably a months. year to shoot. Or like, it's probably six to eight months to shoot and the rest of it for post-production. Because there's a lot of things that need to be done. Need to be have Marketing, done, networking. Yeah, all that stuff needs to happen. So Mike, Mark Sykes, who worked as Corman's assistant and was a longtime comic fan, he says he remembers being handed the script and thinking that surely it was going to be produced by a heavy-duty company like Warner Brothers. But he was assured that they, as in Canon Productions, were actually going to be making the film. Uh, there was said to be a lot of excitement behind the scenes during the making of the film, as many who worked on it were familiar with the IP of the Fantastic Four. I mean, they're, they're Marvel's first family. Yeah. You know, like, the I'm, I'm pretty sure the idea going around was, like, that Marvel wouldn't, Marvel wouldn't do them wrong. Marvel wouldn't. Not the Fantastic Four. No, no, no. Definitely not. Maybe like a Thor or, you know, a Daredevil. Oh, yeah. The surfer Thor. But the the renaissance of Marvel, that 60s where, where, you know, you get your Spider-Man, you get your X-Men, all that starts with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby creating the Fantastic Four. That is it. That's 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 the first. Yeah. Marvel's first family. That's the. So that's Marvel's first. Yeah. Major they league were mainstream, yeah. For a while, then they turned Marvel. Stanley, you know, uh, starts working on creations with Jack Kirby. Some say it was all Kirby. So that was <laughs> it was definitely all Kirby. <laughs> but but um, yeah that that that's when the wheels start turning. Boom, you get Fantastic Four. Boom, you get the X Men. Boom, you get Spider Man. Then you start getting your your side characters like Daredevil, Doctor Hulk, Strange, Thor, and the Strange Tales, uh, Ant Man, and... all that in the sixties. So the the idea is like, yeah, this is Marvel's first family. They're not going to do them wrong, but. They didn't have the rights. It, it was, you know, uh, old Eichinger did. Like, I'm not even going to front. This documentary did, it ended up making me call out loud Stanley an asshole <laughs> twice. Stanley was an asshole. He was a businessman, is what I was saying. He was a Vince McMahon. As, as a man who has a picture of him behind him <laughs> with him. Beautiful, beautiful you know. picture. I showed that picture out all, all the time. That's a beautiful uh, picture. Me, me and me and Stan there. Uh, I, I've heard enough about Stan outside of Marvel, out of the Marvel, you know, visionary bubble to know that he was quite a, quite a businessman. You know, some would say a snake oil salesman. Some would say a shyster. He was 100% he was, a snake oil salesman. But you don't get, it's, it's like the Vince Man argument. Like you don't get that far without that skill. You know, like I you I guess it's like well, could, is there really such thing as a nice 
businessman, millionaire, not billionaire? really nice. No. no, I don't think nice. Because who? What? What are manners? And why have them in the pursuit of 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 supremacy? Right in the pursuit of being the best. Why? Be nice to the people that you're running with. I don't. I, I, I don't know. That. Maybe because Aspect. you know you, you don't want to cut off your own you, foot. You're worried about karma, man. That's what I am worried about, about karma. You it's always about the karma. But my man literally said this movie was never intended to be shown to anybody. But there's what? A, but there's a conversation about that that I think is extremely interesting that uh, we'll we'll talk about in a bit. Um, there was said to be a lot of excitement, like I said, about the whole film, um, and people thought that this was going to be their breakout role. You know. The entire budget of the film will come up to about 1.5 million, because Corman footed uh, 750,000, and the other 750,000 was footed by New Constantine, which was the name of the production company, Eichinger's production company. Um, for reference again, uh, so you guys could know why everyone was so excited behind the scenes, Toxic Avenger, which is considered, you know, a breakout cult classic. Oh, that canon. is the like cult classic. But yeah. you know, for reference, that film was made on five hundred thousand dollars. So this film had three times that amount. So again, the people working at that company were like, "This is the most we've ever spent on anything. This has to. This has to be great." Dude, Get Out was made on ten million dollars. Get Out, even Get Out, Get that, Out was made on ten million dollars, and that's what's so crazy. It's like uh, not uh, what, what well, you go to the you go to the shallow world. What is it called? The sunken place. The sunken place. <laughs> I like shallow. Well, shallow even, world better. even James Blum, J- sorry James Jason Blum of Blumhouse, who knows how to make low budget films, still like how does it happen where something like this just doesn't get released and nobody even cares? It they didn't even care. They're just yeah. like, yeah, we're just we're gonna make this. Let them know that they're making it, but we're not gonna let them know that it's actually never gonna be released. It's, like, it's heartbreaking. There was points where the actual actors of this movie were fronting twelve thousand dollars out their pocket for marketing. Yeah. In well, what world their own, do you hear that? We'll get into that, but they were doing their own Comic Con appearances. <laughs> At one point, they're doing their own Comic Con appearances, paid for by themselves, uh, to promote this film. Oh man! Um, so, and another thing was, both of those production companies had only been known for direct to film, uh, direct to video or home video films. So the idea that this was going to be released in theaters, people were getting crazy. Um, by this time, even though you know Keaton's Batman was a phenomenon, like we talked about, Marvel had way less luck with films like Lundgren's Punisher, the '90s Cap films, etc. The expectations were so low that people were impressed that the production featured comic-accurate costumes and characters. And to be honest, those costumes are kind of tight. And I like the yeah, thing. I really yeah. like the thing's design in there. Uh, I like that they made it a mechanical moving face. But obviously, I have a soft spot for the turtles, yeah. the turtles design. I like, I like those 90 turtle design. And that's basically what that is. But no one's really quite got that eyebrow right, that big... Lumpy eyebrow like that Corman's Fantastic Four thing. Uh, For me, it was the fact that contextually, Sue made the costumes. We'll talk about that because I think that that is hilarious. Yo. <laughs> that is hilarious. But we'll get there because I, I have all that because I didn't want to miss any of this. It's all fascinating. No, this is just it's, great. Yeah, I kind of like this more than the Bill Finger one because where the well, Bill... There, there was no... They, like, the Bill Finger one, he only really... Like, Bill, Bill died. He didn't really put up a fight. Not in the saying that he should have fought tooth and nail. He would have went bankrupt. But it was more like about an unsung hero. 
this was like everyone doing the right thing except for whoever was behind the scenes pulling the curtain, you know. Avirad. Oh, well, yeah. I'll say it right now. But <laughs> no, yes, wa- watching Bill Fitton, the, the Batman and Bill documentary just made me sad. Yeah. For almost two hours, I was legit just holding back tears, sucking back these tears as hard as I could. The creator of Batman died broke alone in a crummy rundown apartment with no heat working like yeah that, and, and that breaks been, my heart like literally bob kane who was the co-creator had outwardly said that you know he didn't do anything like i, I did it all I, I did it all i, I did it all yeah i made yes yeah, so, but with this i'm just literally like i said i couldn't even finish i, I finished showering but i could barely shower because i'm just like yo everybody here has passion everybody here is having fun they're so excited about this um, new career start. They're about to be breakout. Oh, and the thing I'm gonna is, be the next this, the next that. I could see how some people at home might be like, how could they see what was, how could they film what was being filmed and still think that it was going to be anything? And to that, I would say, like, if <laughs> any, any film synopsis <laughs> over the last 20, 30 years sounds absolutely bonkers. All of it. It takes a well, you know, a, a well written script. It takes an awesome director with a good eye, and it takes a phenomenal cast to get something to work. Um, when you think a lot about those night, look at look at the Justice League night pilot or whatever, right? Yep. It's like you don't know how things are going to look until they do, do, do the post production, until they do the, the composing, all that kind of stuff. I could see how people might have thought they were in terrible films before they saw everything get put together, and these guys again. Really think that they're making a Fantastic Four film? Why would that not work? You know, why would that not? And work the the, the whole thing about it is, there was so many passionate. Not, the, I don't want to keep using the word passionate, but there was so many. There was the pe- enthusiasm, yeah, the energy, the excitement. The uh, what's his the name? Professionalism. Uh, uh burn whatever his name is. That that one producer with the assistant. That assistant dude grew up with comics. His father was a big comic nerd. He's a comic nerd. Like there was so many people. That were either a reading this script or seeing it while it was being created, and they're like, "Man, this is gonna be something. This is gonna be something." And everybody has to keep in mind it was this was 1993. This was before Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. This was before The Dark Knight and Spider Man Two and Iron Man. This was before everything. You had no um, gauge. You had no standard. Right. You could have set the newer standard of this is how comic book movies should be made. And it never saw the light of day. Yeah. But the fact that there... That's what I love is the fact that there were so many enthusiastic people behind this movie. There's no way it could have gone wrong. No way. Even if I didn't like the movie and I think the movie was dumb, I love that everybody was having fun. Right. I always love the fact that people can have fun. And from a distance, it looked like them. It looked like the Fantastic Four. It really did look like the family. Yeah. That's what you kind of wanted. They should have known something was up though, Dan. Because as they were working, you know, they they said that by all accounts, the first draft of the script was well written. They said it was accurate to comics. But originally, they were going to have the Mole Man in the film. The first villain introduced in Fantastic Four comics. If you ever remember the the cover of Fantastic Four, number one, it's very famous. It's this big mole mole monster coming out of the ground. And, uh, you know, while the Fantastic Four is running around him and attacking him. Because the Mole Man was their first villain. And so the idea is you make the first Fantastic Four movie and you don't want to go Doom. You do you do Mole Man. 
And what did I meant? What did I say last time uh, during the Witch Was Worse? It's like yeah. if, if you're gonna do a Fantastic Four movie, finally do a Fantastic Four movie without Doctor Doom. Like this was gonna, this was gonna do, do this was gonna seem seemingly set up, you know, like this. Mole Man was was gonna be in this film to get spiked, right? To make the team look like badasses, and I guess Doom was gonna come in after the fact, which, you know, that works as well. Um, so. They couldn't use the Mole Man. They ended up having to change the villain to the jeweler. And some believe that Marvel's inability to lend the Mole Man over was the first sign of their lack of cooperation towards making oh, the film. Oh, 100%. And again, I don't think... Why would they be stringent on the Mole Man? Right? <laughs> it's not like they, they it's not like they didn't want to lend him because they were going to do a Mole Man series on ABC. You know? Dark and gritty Mole but that's Man. That's what I don't understand is what was Marvel's not just reluctancy, but... What was it that just made them not want to play ball? So, you know, one p- part of it is that it it doesn't belong to them. While it's a Marvel Comics property, they didn't own it. You know, they already they already made their money on on the sale of the property and they were hoping that the rights would be re- uh reverted back. And as you spoke about earlier, Avi Arad was come was set to come on board and try this new Marvel movie renaissance, which meant pairing pairing good properties with good directors and good um, studios, and not a one point five million dollar uh, Fantastic Four film. So sadness, madness, sadness and madness. Posters were made that showed Marvel's first family, and they had to show Marvel's first family because the popularity of the IP of Fantastic Four eclipsed any of the star power in the film. <laughs> These people weren't. They're, they're great actors, but they weren't knocking down doors at the time. As a matter of fact, a lot of them thought that this was going to be the thing that was going to knock down all the doors for them. Uh, they speak about bringing the thing to life, and it seems like a lot of work was done to make him like sympathetic and monstrous. What do you think about that whole thing? They went into like a passionate kind of conversation about how they wanted to make him a moat and, and uh, how they was... When they were going by the specs of how the, the, the mask was going to move, that like in certain scenes you have this uh, plastic thing for just normal talking, and then when he has to bust through a wall, they make it like metal so he doesn't get hurt when he does it. Like They went through all of the nooks and crannies to give us an, an accurate thing. And Mike Michael Bailey Smith... Was probably a way better thing than Michael Chiklis. Yeah. Not I personally. I love. Michael I Chiklis actually thought them. they kind of resembled each other when I saw him. Right? Don't they? In and they're the both named Michael. Yeah. In the documentary, I'm like, he look like kind of like an old Ben Grimm, bro. <laughs> I was like, I'm glad. I'm glad that. Yeah. That also out. got me mad that they casted him to be Ben Grimm and not but the not thing. <laughs> that and 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 when and the actor who plays the thing was shorter than the actor. Who that played was the ben worst. Grimm. Part. Sue Storm actress was like, yo, you see Michael Smith and he's like six five, built like a tank. Yeah. And then they then they go to show the, the shot of actual Michael Bailey Smith and the guy in the thing costume. And I'm like, he yo, kind of shrinks to it's become the, the thing. It's the opposite Bill Bixby Lou Ferrigno. Yeah. It's like it's like if Lou Ferrigno was Bruce Banner and Bill Bixby was the Hulk. Like what? Yeah, that would have been out of control. It's like oh how, you, how how is this supposed to be a power up? In this instance, it made no oh damn sense. Oh my god! Um, they also created a comic book accurate look for Doctor Doom, although the actor behind it called filming in the suit one of the more grueling experiences in his. I was also career. not a fan of what this guy's interpretation of Doom would sound like. I really, yeah. really I don't know why. It's but it's it, mustache twirly. It you know? is it's, too. It's, it's, it's missing too mustache twirly. It's missing. Yeah, but I feel like it's like what 
Earth the Kit, I mean, Earth the Kit, well, it's like what Uma Thurman did with Poison Ivy, which Uma Thurman was trying to do an Earth the Kit thing <laughs> with Poison Ivy. Uh, you know, like a no, 60s I get it. You're trying to chew the kinda... scenery. You're trying yeah, to, yeah, yeah, you're trying to yeah. chew the scenery. But when he starts, like, like uh, giving an example of. Oh, you're his... talking about the Mussolini stuff? Yeah, but he's like. And then you talk like this, and this is what right. Doctor Doom it, it sounds remi- it like. It reminds me of old school acting, though. Like the way he but spoke, but he is an old school actor. And the way, yeah. and the way that uh, Alex Reed spoke, I felt like they both their voices sounded like actor voices, like someone who had been vocally trained to speak. Uh, um, and yeah, that's another thing that was interesting is that the actors, uh, you know, they were psyched to be playing, playing such iconic characters. But Alex and Joseph, who he just spoke about, Reed and Doom, they became fast friends on the set. Um, other notable names who auditioned, including... I was actually going to bring this up because I was hoping that you wrote down... Ev- that's oh. what I do, B. Woo! I was so literally... here in these streets. I, I had notes. it written I had it written down just in case you didn't, you know, because there was too much stuff to cover. Just yeah. in case, because those names are crazy. Yeah, I didn't get all of them, but the ones that made that stood out to me were Mark Ruffalo. And he was supposed to be who? Doom. Uh, Doom. Um, uh, Dr. He's Doom. too young there. Uh, Renee O'Connor was also uh, came in. I think she's read for Sue, but Patrick Warburton <laughs> read for Thing. Patrick Warburton, he would be a great thing. He was, I, I think maybe not too long after that, he was doing the Tick. He did do the Tick. He did uh, the Tick like ninety four, ninety five ish. I can't remember when the Tick was. They said ninety four, ninety five. It's like it's 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 literally like the cusp of the nineties. Yeah, spoon? I remember. I just remember him yelling Spoon. About it. They um, you've seen Sons of Anarchy, right? Yeah. Remember Jimmy O? Yes. Jimmy O was. Uh... Poor- that's who that guy. Ty- uh, I'm trying to remember who his name is. That's Jimmy O. Oh wow! I don't know. That the uh, yeah yeah he was also he's like in SWAT. He either plays a bad guy or he plays a cop. That's literally all he plays. It's either a bad guy or a cop. I think everybody saw SWAT, but no one wants to admit it. Everybody saw <laughs> and loved. Uh, everybody loved SWAT. I don't know about love. That, it, you're it has crazy. it has Nick Fury, Hawkeye, LL Cool J, Electro. Uh, and <laughs> yes, Electro and freaking um, what's his face? Uh, Bullseye. Yeah, Colin Farrell. We may one of these days, and maybe even for the Patreon, we will gotta come up. We gotta see which movies have the most comic book actors in it. Oh, that would be a nice one. Uh, but that seems like a lot of work and research. You would have, we'd have first. <laughs> we gotta uh, make sure well, we plan I would, that out. I would stick out for the ensemble cast. I'll look up. I'll look for ensemble movies. You could look yeah. up everything else. But the thing is, I don't know if you would necessarily call like something like Kong Skull Island ensemble. But obviously, it has four or five. That movies. has like five Marvel uh, MCU actors in there. Yeah. I would. I don't know. Yeah, no. I think ensemble is like reserved for and like ten any, and more. Anything Nolan, you know, you're gonna get. <laughs> What's his face? Uh... Michael Caine. Michael Caine's always in Which, Nolan film. The way I, that's how I'm able to say his name with that accent. I just say Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. A little bit of my cocaine. <laughs> Don't touch my cocaine. You know what? There's somebody. There's somebody out. There. You know what? My Brit- our British fans. I don't mean to. I'm sorry. I do I not mean. Really? I don't. I don't mean to. You know, uh, make fun. But I I'm pretty shameless. sure you guys are trying your Brooklyn accents over there. Of course, you, you feel me. They Get definitely out of saying here. bacon, egg, and cheese. Forget about it. Give me some water. Stuff like that. Give me a bagel. Let's play some handball. You know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, my cocaine. My <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> you're never gonna. You're never gonna. I'm never that. gonna hear that <laughs> You're never gonna hear his name the same again. My oh, cocaine. We, we love you, UK supporters. We That's also it. love Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. So yes, and go listen to the astonishing. Sorry, the aspiring Kryptonian podcast. Oh, she said, "She said astonishing." I was thinking Marvel. I was on the my astonishing uh, X Men and all that kind of stuff. Aspiring Kryptonians, there goes someone across the pond 
a good friend of the podcast. Yes. Uh, the Aspiring And they're on like their fifth episode now. So yeah, go check them out. All Things Superman. Bless Cheap you guys. Plug, uh, hope you guys right in the get middle. big. I hope you guys get big. Thank yeah, you for and being then on. We it. can have them on Challenge of the Super Fans. Ooh, That's yes, coming back, yes. baby. That definitely we, has to come back. We're doing some things. I didn't win for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we got that on footage, baby. Yeah. <laughs> People at home have no idea what we're talking about. Unreleased stuff. Unreleased. Unreleased? <laughs> Unreleased, released the, the Don Cut of, <laughs> of, of fucking. Oh, look at me! I'm now I got, I'm getting blue. I'm cursing on the podcast. Released the Don Cut of Challenge to the Superfans. That's all I want. Anyway, uh, the production was set to be a mile a minute, but the stars were given a pep talk by the director. The director, you you, you heard this part where he pulls them all in, pulls them all in, gives them a pep talk. Uh, and tells them that he believes that even with a limited budget, they were still going to make an amazing movie. Ole really seemingly cared about the production of this film. Uh, he talks about when he got the script that he went over to a comic shop and tried to, you know, see what else could be implement implemented there so they could follow more of this uh, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee of it all. How do you think Ole came off in this film? Uh, honestly? Yeah. Th- he Besides be- him saying... Uh, and I, I paraphrase, you know, when this happened, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm a Sicilian. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting there, like, he's like, I'm a Sicilian. I like, can't I, take... My first thought is like to kill motherfuckers. Yeah, I was like, fuck niggas. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> oh no. Oh, no. He's like, the first, he's like, you do something to me. First thing I'm thinking is, hey, yo, hey. Yeah, I'm going to do like, something back. I was like, oh. <laughs> we got a tough guy here. Oh, uh. He is who I would be as a director, in all honesty. Yeah. He's very he's very passionate. He's very, like, you know, business mind, and he's responsible and does what he has to do. But he has, he has no qualms, you know, being funny, being cool, being laid back. When he was explain when they were explaining that the very first day of uh, shooting, that uh, Oli wanted to see the entire main cast at, yeah, so like, as, like, a little dinner talk. thing. Yeah, yeah and he was giving like... them a, a pep talk. I'm like... That's literally that's what I would do if I had my. If we were making a film right now, right before our the marker goes act one. I'm have everybody have a little pep talk. Let's take a knee, and if your knees are bad, stand. It doesn't matter. But he was very. He seemed genuinely kind, yeah, nice, all around happy to be there. But he also seemed heartbroken. I think. I think that that's where the human mind starts to sympathize. When you see that he does look disheartened by the fact that this wasn't made, he he says at one point even the line, "It sh- it would it wouldn't slash shouldn't be destroyed because if you care anything about film, you would never destroy it." That that yes yes, yeah. and I feel like that level of gravitas that you put on a medium shows a level of care. You know, oh, he cares about movies. Yeah. He cares about movies. So uh, before the before the. Uh, Behind the scenes, we find out that the movie production was simply so that a film could be shot before Constantine lost the rights to the project to Marvel, something most of the people working on the film had no idea about. Everyone thought this film was going to get a theatrical release. Actors remarked that they were barely rehearsals, if there, any. There, 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 there was no rehearsals. There was not. There was nothing. This was there was yeah, no table read. They said there was no rehearsals or any of that stuff before shooting. What killed me was Corman didn't even have an external monitor to review the footage that was shot. Yeah, you know they were doing everything that's on like huge. old school cameras. Yeah, that's that's 
Ridiculous. Think they didn't even have the the, the 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 film print to match. Like, like usually you have like I forget what they call it, um, but it's like a it's like a tent, and the director sits there. Yeah, and he's watching it while the cinematographer is right, doing right, right. all the shots. And, and he calls they, all. No, none of that. If you had the camera, that's what you saw. He had to stand right whatever, there and just whatever watch. Whatever the camera was, yep. that's what because that, there was no external monitor. Um, the director remembers how hard the leads in the film worked to really portray their characters faithfully, saying that they were fil- uh, filled with enthusiasm. The studio, in their uh, description, equated to a condemned barn that was condemned even by fire marshal standards. The workplace environment was said to have was said to be less than stellar. No, that was what what hurt the most was that they they said like there was a sign that was like. Uh, blocked off in like the back of the building that literally says this place is condemned. Yeah. There was roaches and ants and, and they had a cat that was literally fighting uh, hunting rats in that place. Yep. Like oh my god, just this development hell? No, 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 no. This is development the bad place. The bad place. Even with all of these issues, the rats, the workplace environment, the condemned barn, etc., all of the stars managed to land the cover of film threat a magazine, um, and another accomplishment that seemed to point at a happy ending. So this is, yeah, this is here. here this is where it's at. The faulty nature of the costumes was given an in-universe reason, as it was said that Sue made the costumes themselves. Which just cracks me up. That is hilarious. One, you know, Dan, there's nothing I love more than a good in-universe reason. Of course. I love in-universe Because it gives context to why something is shitty. A hundred percent. I love good universe reasons, but I also have had to, you know, give the pep talk of like, we got to do what we can with what we got. And it was hilarious to hear the actress who played Sue Storm say that that's what the director said. Like she went up to the director and was like, these are kind of shitty. And he was like, well, you made them. So (laughs) like, what did you like? Can you make something better? Bro, and they said like you could see under like a close up that it was like stitched on, like the, the floor the was tucked into like, the yeah. belt. Yeah, yeah, um, so that was hilarious. And oh yeah, the actors wore their own clothes for majority that, of the filming. That was another thing that was like, yo, there is so much about this movie that is what I would do. Yeah, because if I when I when I make a movie, bro, I don't want to I don't want a costume department. That's yeah. a whole bunch of money in the budget that I don't need to spend when you could literally wear your actual clothes and it. I what... think I think you're fine with anyone with actual clothes unless you're doing a period piece. No, one hundred percent. Unless yeah. you have to like be in like the seventies an and wear bell bottoms and stuff like that, or the eighties and wear hair metal type uh, mohawks. Like if you're making a film in 2021 and the film is set in 2021, bro, just let them come from home and wear their own clothes. Yeah. It's Always Sunny did it. 14 seasons. It's Always Sunny has never had a costume department unless it needed one. Right. Most of the time, they're all wearing their own clothes from home. And I'm almost certain there wasn't a uh, a person who was doing it for uh, Clerks. I don't think Clerks had it. Oh, hell no. Hell no. Bro, that movie, that. Was, that movie was made for like less than a million dollars. That's what I'm saying. So like why even go through the struggle of, of doing any of that? Um... 
but it was that was like you said it was it, it was so funny that you just see the cuts of the scenes and it's like they're talking over of how bad the costumes were and you just see Sue handing the team their costumes and he's like oh yeah I I made these I made these and it, yeah it's, it's it's probably uh, only behind the scenes mouthing the same words as she's saying them I made them I made them poor guy you know poor everybody on that production they also had a bad hazmat suit a space and a space suit that they were laughing about that they were basically it was basically aluminum for you. Uh, Stan Lee would also you would talk about your man Stan Stanley the manly. Stan Lee was also seen on set giving compliments and checking out the production, although he would later say that he didn't think too much of the film, which was an emotional blow to the actors. Uh, they even show footage of him announcing the film in 1993, but also announcing that Marvel has no affiliation with the film. That's where I, that's where another moment where I was like, yo, this dude is an asshole. Promising that Fantastic Four would be the last Marvel film without Marvel's input. But the thing is, Dan, I can see you getting to a point. Like, let's say you, you decide that you are going to, instead of making films, you are going to write a bunch of scripts first. Yeah. You're going to write a script. You're going to write scripts for this five film Extravaganza that you're 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 seemingly big old franchise, right? Big old franchise. Your own like your own uh, a skewerverse, view a skewerverse. So, so you you go you go ahead. You create these five movies, and then you know uh, Disney wants to buy them, you know, and so they make two of them, and they're god awful, right? Then they go to make the third. But after that, the the rights revert back to you. I could totally see you standing out there and being like, "Hey, uh." That movie that's coming out, that's coming out, and all yeah, right. it is my thing, but it ain't really my all thing. All right, all right. So I guess you know? more in, in that in that perspective, yes. If I if I gave you my baby, and I said take care of my baby, yeah, and you had two chances to take care of my baby, and you flopped on my baby, I'm taking my baby back, and then I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know be a friend. That's it. Right. I so do I think there was something funny about selling it and then saying the whole my baby thing of it all because you don't have to sell it. Yeah. You could always hold it and, and try to do it when you with it, what you can. And they even go to the point the 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 actor who plays Reed at one point tries to look at it on the other side. Remember, there's a point where yeah. he's like, "Well, you know, if they were trying to create a brand new multi-million dollar film franchise, this little 1.5 million dollar film with actors that people didn't really know uh could tank the IP." Of that entire thing. If that was the first thing anyone saw Fantastic Four, and if they thought that they could do better, what is the kind of what is yeah, the utility of Yeah, but then the first time you around? see Fantastic Four is in 2005, and that movie. Who, who would have thought it would have took 10 years after the fact, though? Yeah. Who would have thought it would have took uh, yeah, more than 10 years after the fact? A good 12. Yeah. Uh, the film production wrapped up so fast, they didn't do a cast and crew screening. Bro, they didn't even, they didn't even have a party. Nope. They didn't even have a freaking, uh, what's that thing? The. Rap party. Rap party. They didn't have a rap party. There was no release. They didn't even have permission to get this movie playing in Mall of America, so it never even played there. we're going to get there, too, because that's heartbreaking as well. Uh, So we were just talking about the cast and crew screening. Even though the filming was complete, it was left in the post-production stage for an unusually long time, which was particularly interesting because the film already had a trailer. New Mutants, New Mutants, New Mutants. When the actors would call asking for production stills, they were left on the hook. Could you imagine that being in a film, trying to promote that film, calling up saying, "Hey, can you give me any of the pictures that were taken?" And they're just like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll call you back," and they never, they never get back to you. The film was secretly finished 
and had visual effects added. The visual effects uh, supervisor was said to be in way over his head. Yo, that... Said he worked on the Independence Day film franchise, uh, and the finished product showed his naivety. Naivety, yeah. Naivete? Naivete. Naivete. And it's so, it's so funny. It's like, yeah, he might have worked on Independence Day, but I don't think he was the special effects supervisor. Right. I think he just designed the effects. There's a lot of people sell, selling snake oil, bro. There's a lot so much snake oil, snake oil for oil. sale. A lot of snake oil out here. I could just imagine this dude being like a, a young encumbered 23-year-old. Ni- this is the 90s, so you can't Google search a person's history. You like can't that. even Alta Vista them at this yet. Alta Vista. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Al Gore was working on the internet probably around this time. But again, it wasn't at the consumer level where you could just check everyone's credentials or, you know, do all this kind of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, people were just trying to make money hand over foot, I guess. Mr. Film was brought in to help after the first VFX supervisor left the project. But in the middle of doing all that, money just ran out. They asked for money. We ain't got no money. Even with no money, Oli, the director, still managed to add scenes to the film to add depth, often having to loan out equipment on his own dime. That included that scene where uh, they shot some stuff for um, Doctor Doom in a throne. And they also shot some extra footage of the thing walking around the streets of the, New York City. That was the best because that, who, who was that? That was, uh, that was Oli in that costume? That was, not no, Oli. it was um, uh, Mark Sykes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was a freaking – I can't pronounce his last name. Uh, he was a. He, he, you're talking Eichinger? I That's Eichinger's assistant. That was Corman's assistant. Oh, no, Corman's assistant. Yeah, so Corman's yeah. assistant ended up putting. And he was a Fantastic Four fan and he got to wear the thing stuff. You know, the best part about it is the director talking yeah, about uh, it, that not was knowing it. that Mark that was, was in the room. It. That Mark was in the room and they probably had never spoken about it since it happened. You know? And my man just goes, wait a minute, that was you? He was, no, the guy's like, that was me under the He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah see? I guess it was he, him. Yeah, because he probably, come on. The assistant, he was like, any, mini miny, mo. Uh, we need somebody in the suit. And that was it. Just to do a bunch of B footage again. Oh, with just no him money. walking around New York? With no money. No money from the production studio. The director. They did it themselves. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and then it never even goes anywhere. It just never goes. Like, I can't even. Im- this is heartbreaking. It, 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 yeah, it is. This is so heartbreaking. This is another heartbreaking part. Joseph Culp, who played Dr. Doom, had performed all of his lines behind the iconic mask, thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're going to bring me in to redub the lines because you obviously can't understand me with the mask on. As most people, if you don't know movie magic, most people that you see behind a mask then re-record their lines. Are dubbed in, yes. And then they're dubbed in. Sometimes they're dubbed in with a bit of a muffle so it can they can uh, simulate, you know, a cloth mask. But most of the time, you know, they're recorded so you can just sound normal. So this guy is behind this mask, and he, this is how he's doing all of his lines, and he's talking about all this stuff like this. And he is like, oh, yeah, whatever, we filmed it. They're going to call me in to do the lines. And he was told that they prefer they preferred it as it was. <laughs> which reminds me and of he the... he didn't like that. Which reminds me of the, you made these suits. Every time that they're going up to, to try as stars to promote and make this film better, they're, being, they're getting uh, their legs cut out from underneath... By the production studio. Completely shafted. Um, which was, yeah, that's sort of kind of ridiculous. The, yeah, the, yeah, he was annoyed. That's what you were saying. The composers took money out of their own pocket to pay for a 40 piece Another orchestra. one. Yeah, another two people that paid like fucking 6000 out of pocket. To, to get an orchestra to score the film, and the score is said to easily be the best part of the whole thing. 
Um, they talk about how the director never relented in his idea that this film would be a success. According to all the cast, Oli was saying, you know, we got this. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. You know, this may not seem like it's on the up and up, but don't even worry about it. On paper, this was Corman's biggest production. So what could go wrong? A lot. Months passed with no word on the film, and in 1993, while it was in post-production limbo, the marketing team asked if they were interested in promoting at a comic convention where they could also screen the trailer. Alex, who plays Reed Richards, started to go on his own promoting the film and got the rest of the cast to promote at conventions, even though Roger Corman, the man paying their bills, could not pay them to do so. He gave them stills to sign, but he couldn't pay them. Michael Bailey Smith, who you were talking about, who plays Ben Grimm, would go on to pay 12k of his own money, going to the conventions with Alex and signing autographs and trying to, you know, get this thing, uh, you know, ground roots campaign to get people to watch this thing. And once the stars heard the film was done, they spoke about doing a live screening at the Mall of America, but it never came to pass. The director called the stars to tell them that the film just wasn't going to be released. And rumbling started that the film was never meant to see the light of day to begin with. So, Daniel. This is where I say um, that now there are two points of view and ways to look at this. Some people believe that this film was never meant to see the light of day. Right? And if that's the case, what's the... What? What? No, but the thing is, <laughs> that people do that to retain rights. Like, I totally buy that. But oh, some of the actors, some of the actors in this, don't believe that that was the case. They don't think that they made a film that was never meant to see the light of day. They believe that they made a film that eventually got basically on the nerves of someone higher up, and they kiboshed it to start a brand new road of films. I think it's a little column A, column B. Right. I feel like the, 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 the act, not to interrupt I'm sorry oh, but the ahead. actress who plays Sue Storm says and I agree she says you could have just started production and then tanked the whole thing and you still would have retained rights because they didn't release this it wasn't yeah. a release it wasn't a, a buy release clause it's a production clause so you could have started making this film not made it and it is what it is what was the point of sinking a million dollars into it so she rich believes rich people doing rich people things she believes that this was going to get a low budget release and they were going to do it the no American they had no they had it per- they had it almost purchased yeah. 500 theaters were right. going to get caps of the uh, cans right. of that they were going to get the real cans right 500 theaters it was going to be a limited release which frustrates the actors when they hear people say that this film was never meant to be released because all the things you're saying point to it was but something stopped it so which side of the camp are you on are you on the side of the camp that this was always a malicious act and they strung along these actors directors and producers uh and and they always knew they need they used their enthusiasm because they needed a good product but was never going to show it or that they actually factually thought they were making a marvel film while it got towards the end of it someone new came in as a higher up and said nah we're not doing that and the thing is we're seeing something like that happen right now in dc we just saw two films that were greenlit post uh, Batman v Superman and you know stuff like that get kiboshed they're not doing the Trench movie they're not doing New Gods were they always not doing New Gods obviously not because Ava DuVernay was working on it with Tom King I feel like it's it's column A and column B at the same time it's half of this film half of this documentary you can tell they had everything they had the money 
they had the 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 actors, they had the placing, everything they needed. Then all of a sudden, some magical acorn from the sky drops and creates a time shift, and all of a sudden, now this film is never meant to be released, and yada, yada, yada. What I think it was is this film was always intended to be released for a low budget under New Constantine. Yeah. Somebody saw that this film was... Stan Lee <laughs> saw that this film was definitely a little bit better than he wanted it to be. He probably wanted this movie to be bad because if this movie came out and it tanked, they get the rights. Right. But if the movie doesn't tank and we literally get one of the biggest comic book movies of all time for a budget less than Get Out, then you don't get the rights. Right. Now it's like, well, now we're going to start hiring new lawyers. Now we're going to start trying to... And it's a, it's a heartbreaking thing to feel like you're in the way of the progress <laughs> of a medium that you like. You None of these people came in here to ruin Fantastic Four. They want. They all had... T- well, not Some of them didn't have ties to it, but most of them wanted to... I think maybe Eichinger probably wasn't, didn't really care. Because he sounds like he didn't really care. He sounds like he came in, went to Corman. Hey, can you make here's this a hundred? Here's seventy. Yeah, yeah. Here's seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You put in seven hundred and fifty. We'll make it back, bro. Don't even worry about it. Fucking yeah, fourteen of uh, one point four million dollar film. We're one point five million dollar film. We're gonna do this. Yeah. But no, like definitely, Stanley came in, saw things going, and like I said, at the time of the this was nineteen ninety three, the two biggest films was Batman eighty nine and Superman of seventy eight. Yeah. Those were the your standard for comic book movies. Right. They probably had something that was a mix between it. They had they probably had something that was so wholesome. <laughs> probably. Which again, we said not a bad movie. Not the worst. Not the worst. Not the worst. Is it yeah. good? No. But it's definitely not the worst. No. Definitely not the worst. More money has been spent on worse films. No. And and they have seen the light of day. Yeah. So yes, this movie was doing good. You had all the work. I I don't care what anybody says. I personally believe that if you have passion you can't go wrong. Yeah. Can you be maligned and misguided? Sure. Right. Can you not have the taste of what this person thought they were doing? Sure. But if you have passion, you cannot go wrong. Everybody and on that thing, set had passion, you know, enthusiasm. To get on him again, you know, from my mouth, I'm not, I'm not, you know, a huge fan of Snyder's portrayal of the DCEU. Yes. I've said it on multiple occasions. There's full episodes of the podcast of me bitching about There's commentary how, tracks about, of it. Yeah, about about all of it. Oh my God, yeah, there are. Um, but I did want to see his vision. And once I saw it for his vision and not for my Justice League, it was different. You know, um, there's something to be said about maintaining that vision. You know, and there is worth there, like you were just saying. Um, New Constantine had it in their clause with Marvel that they had the right to seek other distributors and supposedly wanted to work with 20th Century Fox, who we know would eventually will eventually distribute the Fantastic Four films later on. Um, Alex, a.k.a. Reed, seems to think that the director, Oli, this is what he says, was paid to shelve the film as he felt... I don't think so. He felt that all sides that could have protested seemed happy with the decision. <laughs> I don't know if, if the, uh, anybody else... You would have named anybody else, sure. Yeah. This man was risking federal I think jail I, time. Again, I feel like Eichinger probably didn't give a fuck. And Eichinger... Uh, oh, yeah, right here. Contractual, issue, contractual issues between Constantine and Marvel is what was ultimately to blame for the destruction of the film, as said by Eichinger himself to Oe. Uh, remember he said they were yeah. they were having coffee. He was like, "Oh yeah, don't even worry about it." God, the film's not even gonna be. <laughs> yeah, the film's never gonna, gonna release. 
Then they had to call Doom, Reed, it was everybody. Absolutely ridiculous. No, but that that's that's the whole thing is I totally believe that somebody at Marvel saw this movie while it was being filmed and said, Holy crap. They probably saw one specific scene and were like, Holy crap. Wait, no, 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 no. We need this back. Because they didn't even fight with lawyers on this thing. They mentioned Chris Columbus and wanted to give him a fantastic four film. Did you catch who did you catch the name next to next to Christopher Columbus? Kevin Feige. Bro, I'm still. Kevin I need to know Feige. what movie those two were on together as producers. Kevin Feige. I, 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 yeah. Because I was like, huh. It was like when I saw Greg Greg Berlanti's name yep. on Green Lantern, and I was like, hmm, that's kind of weird. Hmm. For a, for a person so good at looking at quality, you kind of let this one, kind of let this one go get past you. Yeah, you know, I'm actually kind of. You're right on that one. Cause <laughs> Greg Greg Berlanti is he's, he's. And the same thing with with uh no, it was and I think it was Jeff Johns too. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, but yeah. Like I said, you know, you ain't going to always bat a thousand. No, but you could at least have like, you know, an, an average of like a 600. And I think where, where my heart really breaks, and you probably agree with me, with me uh, the cast seemed extremely disheartened. Son, I wanted to cry when Reed Richards' actor yeah. was crying. Like you can see when he was saying, and then the movie was never going to be released. And he looked down. His eyes were look like they were fogging up. Like this dude was ready to cry. Yeah, um, and not only you know disheartened that they that they weren't gonna have this film, but that they were strung along so for so long for such a doomed project. They weren't even compensated at all afterwards, besides the money that they were paid up front. Although Corman, I'd kill somebody. Although Corman somehow made an additional one million dollars, Dan. How? He made his money back. How? The film never came out. Because he was paid a million dollars to take the fuck That's what film. I'm saying. People, were, people got paid out here in these streets. Um, and it was all Stanley and Aviarod. I will go to the grave. Well, Stanley. seeing as you brought up the man, we might as well talk about the man. Avi Arad was named as the brains behind the axing of this film. Whether or not he was, I guess it really doesn't matter. That's how they see it. They say that Avi sells the X-Men rights to 20th Century Fox, and when he found out that there was a low-budget version of the Fantastic Four being made, he He's may like, nah. or may not have made some calls or cut some checks to make sure that it didn't get in the way of Marvel's big movie plans. He definitely did, because you want to know why I know he did? Who are the only two people that started that document started in the documentary that left halfway through that documentary? Corman and Echelon, or whatever his freaking name is. Yeah. At one point, they asked Corman about the mall thing. He's like, yeah, we were going to do the Mall of America, and things didn't just really, they didn't pan out. I never heard of Mall of America before he's like, now. They, he's like, things, 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 things just didn't pan out. And I was like, uh, nope, uh surely nope, you could nope, say nope. more. Bro, surely, I'm, surely you know more, sir. They filmed this. this documentary in 18 months, and in 18 months, Avi Arad refused every single phone call and email and interview. He Stanley was, as well, right? Stanley did not. Yeah, uh, Stan. Stanley and Avi Arad were not to be in, they did not want to be interviewed and that just means that they stopped the halt of this movie. Yeah. Cuz they knew that this was going to ruin not ruin them but they knew that they would have to now have like whoa, this low budget indie film is doing stuff like this. Oh man, we got we got to go. We got to go. What do we what do we even have in the bank? Huh? What do we have in the bank? Nothing. I, I guess I guess the documentary was also strategically planned. Because it comes out the same year as Fan Four Stick. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. So, yeah. No, they probably said, whoa, a third Fantastic Four movie and the world doesn't even know about this first one? Nah, we got to talk about this. So, the director believes that even Corman himself was duped. 
uh, and had no idea the film intended to be shelved. The whole situation seems incredibly hush-hush. We spoke about it a little bit here, and odds are, we, I don't know if we can get sued, but uh, do you want to weigh in on whether or not you, th- you think Corman knew? That this film was going to be tanked? Yeah. No. You don't think he knew? I think he knew when he was paid off. At the end, when it, when it was in the post-production? End. In, in, in the end. In the, yeah. in the beginning, I swear to you, everybody thought or they were going knew in, they were going into it this was, this was uh, going to be... They were going to pay for 500 theaters. There's no way in hell someone's going to pay for 500 theater placements. But the thing is, if you, if you don't, or if you were never intending to, surely you could just say you were, right? There is a lot of that. There's so many liars going there. Like, like what? Dan is disheartened by the amount of uh, no. Like you guys, you guys need on. to understand. It's like I am passionate about filmmaking. That's my thing when it comes down to a film. It, whatever the post of the film is, yes, there's there's stuff to talk about. But the making of the film is something that always, even as a kid, just spoke to me. Yeah. I'm literally like eight years old. Watching eight because I remember when HBO used remember HBO's Inside Look yeah where you would get a five minute behind the scenes making of I used to watch makings ofs on the DVDs for some reason like I I just love the inner workings of how to make a film yeah and film so to in see general, it like this go down like this film in general you know to those who find themselves aficionados uh, is an art form you know but in the same way of being an art form film is a business. Film, film is a and the you, film industry is a you, business. You, I think, more than anybody else knows about that fork in the road. Knows about sometimes you do this for the business of it. Sometimes you do this for the art of it. Sometimes in doing it for the art of it, you never get the recognition that if you did it for the business side of it. I can't remember who it was, but there was a certain director that literally said he hated every movie he had to make until he was finally able to make his own movie. Yeah, but this dude still did did his due diligence. He paved his way by making absolute shit. And then when he was finally able to make his movie, he was like, oh, yeah, I love this. I love this. love this. So, right. so it happens. It definitely does happen. Now, if someone was to come up to me, you're, you are Jason Blum of uh-huh. Blum House. Right. And you come up to me and say, hey, I have $5 million here and I have this really awesome Paranormal Activity 7 script. And I want you, Daniel, to direct it. I hate paranormal activities and all of those supernatural type horror movies, but you best believe I'm going to direct my ass off to pave my way. So, yeah, filmmaking is an art. And to see all of these passionate people get so excited. Acting ain't easy. Directing ain't easy. Cutting and editing ain't easy. Even the girl that played Ben Grimm's girlfriend Uh, said it straight up. She's like, I'm used to theater acting. Like, I'm from New York. Like... That's Cat Green. Um, she probably on a soap it, opera. They say that she, that's what she. I feel kind of bad. She looks like she could be a great actress. It says that that's what she's known for the most. Is the <laughs> it literally says she's best known for being the first woman to play Alicia Masters in Roger Corman's Fantastic. Well, there's only War. two Alicia Masters. Yeah, the other one is Carrie Washington. Carrie Washington, my girl. Um, she did soundtrack work. Yeah, like when she came in. And she was like, she was like reading the script, and like they like instantly like cast her then and there. She's like, whoa, I guess uh, they've never had any real actors audition for them before because they told me that I was amazing acting. Yeah, um, the cast lives their lives without the film on their resumes. 
And after years, people start to recognize them for their roles, which surprises them because it never the got released. film is not out. Turns out, there were renegade copies of the film on eBay. The director believes the film was leaked by someone who dubbed the original film's audio, but also says, God bless them. They got the film out there. The cast talks about whether they think the film was planned from the beginning to be shelved or that the decision came later from heads like Avi Arid. A quote is placed on the screen of an interview Avi did in LA Magazine in which he says, I bought the film for a couple million dollars in cash and burned it. I f- <laughs> There's few... That, that, now again, I think, that, I think that that was fully intended to feel that way. That's petty, though. There's that, petty, and then there's Aviarad. I really felt like that was meant to be the last part of it where we we're supposed to be like, like, screw that guy. <laughs> I think that that's what that was meant for. Um, I mean, so he I single-handedly ruined Spider-Man 3. All of everything yes. that's bad about Spider-Man 3 was Aviarad fighting with yeah. Sam Raimi. I also heard that he got into an argument with a woman at Fox, and that's how Fo- that's how um, the Spider-Man animated series got canceled. <laughs> yep. Yes. So, that's exactly. Yeah. Sp- Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah. They canceled Spectacular. Oh, you're going to talk to me like that? All right. It's all. It's- Ridiculous. Bro, he, and Spectacular Spider-Man is, in my opinion, the best Spider-Man cartoon He's because of how. Killing act- him and remaking him, bro. Bro. Oh my it's like God. Doomsday. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> The interviewees speculate whether a physical copy of the film actually exists and whether there will be any benefits to releasing it. Alex remarks that the film will eventually be seen as a gem for its rarity and could make money upon re-release, something he is sure will happen eventually. Culp says he will go back and re-record Doom's lines if they were sought to re-release it. They thank the comic book fan base for unearthing and distributing the film. The director says they can't waste time worrying about what ifs and that is uh that's the film in its entirety but on um wikipedia they had this to say about the release of this so in 1993 a 1993 magazine article gave a tentative release date of labor day 1993 during that summer trailers ran in theaters it was gonna it was gonna be my birthday yeah it was gonna be well not my birthday yeah but it was gonna be my birthday weekend. Yeah. I would have been born the weekend of the Fantastic Four film. <laughs> and I, I promise you, you know me and I know me. I promise you, if that film did get released May 31st of 1993, that would actually probably be my favorite comic book movie of all time. Right. Because I'm, I'm a weird person that likes movies that has to do with my birthday. Around your birthday. Uh, the cast members hired a publicist. We spoke about this to promote the film and stuff. Suddenly, the, promotion, uh, suddenly the premiere was halted. The actors received a cease and desist on all promotion from the producers and the studio confiscated all of the negatives. Eichinger then informed Sasson that the film would not be released. We spoke about that. Speculation arose that the film was never intended to be released but had gone into production solely as a way for Eichinger to retain rights to the characters. Stanley said in, the two, in 2005 that this was indeed the case, insisting the movie was never meant to be shown to anybody and then adding that the cast and crew had been left unaware. Corman and Eichinger dismissed Lee's claims. So you see what I'm talking about? Lee says, never met. Never met to see the light of day. I'm, I'm assuming Avi said the same thing. But Corman and Eichinger dismissed Lee's claim with Eichinger saying, uh, and with uh, Corman saying, we had a contract to release it. And I had to be bought out of that contract by Eichinger. 
I believe Corman, though. You know? I, be- I believe Corman. And Eichinger called La- Stanley's version of the events definitely not true. It was not our original intention to make a B-movie, that's for sure. But when the movie was there, we wanted to release it. No, but that's the thing about it is people seem like – people will watch this documentary or will hear the story about this documentary and think that this was always meant to be a, a C-grade movie. Yeah. No, that's not why they brought Roger Corman in. Ro- everybody thinks that just because it's low budget, that's bad. That it that it's automatically this bad passion project. Yeah. Like like um Ed Wood. Yeah. Not everything is Ed Wood. Roger Corman is specifically, and you can look on his Wikipedia, a low budget specialist. Right. That's what he. Just because something is low budget doesn't mean it's not going to be amazing. Right. I will. I've said it now the third time. I'm going to say it. Get Out. You look up Get Out uh, box office gross more than 10 times its freaking budget. $10 million, and that movie went into the 100 millions. Roger Corman was brought on as the executive producer to be able to fast-track a Fantastic Four movie. Yes, but fast-track a Fantastic Four movie to be good and cost next to nothing in film industry standards. Because Roger Corman wasn't making bad movies at all. Before this whole Fantastic Four thing, he was not making bad movies. He was making cult classics, which is another thing people have to understand. Just because something's a cult classic doesn't mean that it is inherently so bad that it's good. It was a, this movie wasn't given its proper credit when it came out. And then some odd months, years later on its VHS DVD release, now all of a sudden has a new life. Fight right. Club. Would you call Fight Club a terrible movie? No. Just because it didn't do good when it came out, but it's a cult classic. What it, wasn't... Didn't both Blade Runners not necessarily do great when they terrible, came out? Terrible at the box office. <laughs> terrible at the box office. There were, so it's like, yeah, there's, there's four no, versions of that movie. There's no rhyme or reason for any of that. It just doesn't... It doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, so yeah, Eisinger and, and Corman are like, nah, we were gonna do it. We were gonna make this film. So... Uh, Eichinger is the one who said about, you know, Avi Arad about the whole thing in 1993. He says, Avi Arad calls me up and says, listen, I think what you did was great. It shows your enthusiasm for the movie and the property. And I understand that you have invested so much and Roger has invested so, so much. Let's do a deal. Because he really didn't like the idea that a small movie was coming out and maybe ruining the franchise. He said, he, so he says to me that he wants to give me back the money that we spent on the movie and that we should not release it. Which then, I guess, leads up to the million dollars that Corman got. You know? So, yeah. I mean... Hmm. Terrible. Av- Avi Arad recalled in 2002 that while on a trip up in Puerto Rico in 1993, a fan noticed Arad's Fantastic Four shirt and expressed excitement over the film's upcoming premiere, of which Arad said he was unaware. Concerned how the low-budget film might cheapen the brand... He said he purchased the film for a couple million dollars in cash and, not having seen it, ordered all prints destroyed in order to prevent its release. And that's what we were talking about there. Um, Eichinger continued negotiations to produce a big-budget adaptation, speaking with directors that included Christopher Columbus, Peyton Reed, and Peter Siegel. Um, But, yeah, Eichinger and Constantine produced uh, $130 million you know, they did the Fantastic Four in 2005, and then they did the one in 2007. And that's under Eichinger's production, because he still owned the rights to 
the Fantastic Four. So, an incredibly doomed production. Uh, I'm I'm gonna look through some of these actors' uh, Wikipedia's, I guess, right? Uh, yeah, because they were doing things in between. Yeah, so the guy who plays, I'm gonna point out, like, oh wow, the guy who plays Reed Richards was in the toy. Remember when we were talking about the toy? Yep. Uh, but he is in. He was in Captain America two. That was in um 1997. He was in Buck Rogers. He yes. He was yes, in yes, Dexter. Yes. He was in Agents of Shield, which I guess you know brought back into the Marvel of it all. He was in Shameless. Uh, yeah, he was in a bunch of different things. He he's, he's had a pretty a, a pretty good career. He was in Walker Texas Ranger. Uh, and that show lasted like 20 years. The actress who played Reed Richards, Miss Rebecca Stab, uh, she's she was on Beverly Hills 90210. She was on Seinfeld. She was on Ellen, Home Improvement. She was on Chicago Hope, uh, Nip Tuck, CSI New York, CSI Crime Scene Investigation, uh, Criminal Minds, Glee, Fairly Legal, uh, is it just Las Vegas or CSI Las Vegas? Yeah, apparently there was a TV show just called Las Vegas. Yes, there was actually. Jay Underwood, who played the Human Torch. He would go, they say a partial filmography. I don't know what that means. Uh, partial filmography mean they don't have everything that he has because he probably did stuff that's like unaccredited that they don't, or the person that wrote that Wikipedia page just doesn't know. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, his notable stuff, he was in an episode of X-Files. He was in Road to Redemption. He was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager. And he was in an episode of 21 Jump Street. That's not that bad. Let's get to Michael Bailey Smith. That is the thing, right? The Michael Bailey Smith is the thing. He's best known for his appearances in Charmed, apparently, where he pay- played Balthazar. No way! Yeah, I was not. All a right, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of funny because uh, is this where you admit to the world that you're a huge Charmed fan? I fan? actually am. Do it to it. Grow, grow I'm not here to shame you. It grow, grow, my thing is, is uh, certain shows and movies have an emotional connection for me. So Charmed and West Wing have a very strong emotional connection for me because those are my mom's. Well, it probably changed, but growing up, those are my mother's two favorite shows of all time. I will literally be watching cartoons. Oh, ooh, ooh, four o'clock, four o'clock. Put on TNT, West Wing, West Wing. And then West Wing's over. Okay, yes, I get to watch cartoons again. Charmed, Charmed starting. Oh, come on. I just, like, Charmed was one of those shows like Seinfeld. I always remember the beginning of the episodes, but I never finished. Uh, I never finished doing them. I just know that that entrance, uh, entrance, why did oh, I say that? That theme good, song is. That's a good way to turn the fan base on, on the host. I have never seen Seinfeld, and I have no intention of ever seeing Seinfeld. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to front. I think I can live my life without Seinfeld. I don't I think you seen, can. I, I haven't think you seen, can. I haven't seen, uh, what's that other one that everyone's always talking about? The Wire. I, I have never seen The Wire back, either. I'd much yeah. rather go back and watch The Wire than go back and watch Seinfeld. I think that's going to have to be a show that me and you Cover actually yeah. just get into, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially with new things in the I've works. I've great things about it, and I don't know, I don't, I, I, I've I'm been, not really spoiled. I've been told that yeah, I have I have no Wait. spoilers on the wire. All I know is the wire is like top three greatest American television shows ever made. I like, know homeboy from that that the the teacher, teacher in community, community was in uh, was in the wire. 
Also, Idris Elba starts there. Yes, I've heard that. Well, and, and uh, Michael B. Jordan, I believe. Yes, Michael B. There. Jordan grew, literally grew up on that show from right. kid to adult. So we randomly got on the wire because we were on Charmed. That's what it was. Uh, <laughs> the segues, the, the super segues. But yeah, Dan, how do you how are you feeling about all this? How are you feeling about all this that's going on? Oh, uh, the the guy who played Doctor Doom played Franklin D. Roosevelt in Agents of Shield. The free- <laughs> And he was in a guest role on Mad Men. Oh, that poor bastard. He was in a guest role. Bastard. He was on House? He probably was. No, I'm telling you. I'm reading it right here. No, I'm, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I probably have seen, because I've seen both Mad Men and House. So yeah. I've probably seen him on there and had no idea who he was. But the fact that he was in David Hasselhoff's Shield in the same decade that a Fantastic Four movie was made in. Is... Oh, no, no. He's in the 2020 Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, that's what I'm saying. They actually, you know, they, I, I, we spoke. Oh, about, so we had a revitalized career. That's what I'm saying. We spoke about um, Doom and Reed being friends on set. Both Doom and Reed got to come back to do Agents of Shield. So that's I guess also that, I guess that's cool. what that was there. We talk often about superhero redemption and stuff, but yeah, it looks like that. That's was, a that that's just an actor's redemption right there at that point. Yeah. But we're about done talking about this documentary of failed projects and hopefully um, – oh, I guess, no, that should be the last thing that we talk about. Do you think it's viable to bring it back? Do you think it's viable to release this thing? How, release the Corman cut! What would Hashtag! Be, what would be – well, the thing is it's not even about the cut, right? Because the no cut oh, No, there out. is no cut. Like, <laughs> no I, cut so out. then how would you – release the Corman release, film? Release the Fantastic Four? <laughs> we have to. We have to. No, honestly? honestly Do I'm, you see it I'm gonna watch something I'm, viable? I'm going to watch it. On, I've never seen it. Yeah. I've only seen clips. I've seen pictures. And I've seen articles. I think you even wrote that it was. I probably part- wrote something about it. It had to have been in one of them, I remember. But I have not seen anything about this movie except now this documentary. So I'm going to watch this movie. Yeah. And I will tell you straight up. I believe. And if I'm wrong, I will make a post on Comic Book Click on Facebook that I was wrong. But I think that this movie has something if it's revitalized. Yeah. If they were to go back and read. Reshoot Doom's vo- vocals. What do you think about the uh, suggestion that somebody come back in and fix the? That's what I was gonna mention. Yes, yeah, definitely. If yeah. someone was to come back in and fix the effects, and not fix the effects to where you can tell it's two thousand and twenty one effects, yeah. but there's got to be a way that you can like, I don't want to say the word half ass the well, effects, but you know, I I heard things about the Mandalorian that they were still using models. To replicate some of the, you know, no, but that's in, that's Alan, that's industrial light and magic. That's just w- w- what they do. Yeah, but if I'm saying they, you know, they don't have to use models. They can put a CGI spaceship there. They used models because they used models in the 80s and in the 70s. Uh, so there are ways of replicating old film techniques. So yeah, I would totally like to see something like this. I think this would be good to come out on the Disney Plus, perhaps. Maybe. Oh, 100. Yeah. I think they should. I think they should. I think the worst part about this is not having not being able to put this on your resume. As they spoke about, right? I still would. Would you? I would. I'd one hundred percent say I was in a movie that was Shanghaied for a million dollars. And then who's gonna believe you? You talk to the I will director. Send, I will send them to the Daily Motion link. To, oh I will gosh, send them to YouTube terrible. and say, "See this movie? See that? See that Johnny Storm guy? That was me. That's, that's me." We got to thank uh, Marty Langford who directed the film, and and then Mark Grove and Mark Sykes who produced it. Mark Sykes, as you know. Um, and this was dedicated to his father. Yeah. So that's a, a that's a big comics, one. Um, and really wanted to get this story out there. And what a story to be had. And we're over here constantly tackling the latest and greatest stories to come to comic books and comic book media every single week. And you can find every single episode of the Major Issues podcast at 
comicbookclick.com, as well as articles and all of our merch at TeePublic. Interestingly enough, we have some new articles coming in from GT Rebirth. He's been doing his episode-by-episode recaps and reviews of Captain America and Winter Soldier. So that's fun. Check that out. Episode 3 uh, recaps will be coming out soon. Oh, he's been... that. That's right. He has yeah. been doing so... Yeah, so good. we have something. Shout have, out to good old GT, man. At least you got something, you know. Yeah, we got a rolling. Uh, we have a rolling article coming, you know, where we can I, expect more and more, uh, which is awesome. I've been brainstorming front. certain ideas for an art because I wanted. I want to be able to get one out real you quick. Got, you so. need the Taskmaster article. <laughs> oh my god, that's actually gonna be a. Yeah, that's a, you so got, you got uh four months for it. To, it's to, not just. It's not just Taskmaster. No, it's a I'll, bunch of stuff, but ta- that's where that that's where that stands out. Like, yeah, that would, that's right there. So, what was the director's one about? Oh, the ending of phase of phase three. Yeah, the ending. Which of we, phase which three. I, I don't even think we have that too many named directors. We honestly, right I now. I swear to I swear to you, I want to write this TV, the TV directors to be movie directors, but there's really n- TV directing is different than movie directing. You but can you, have a show for is, five years and never have the same director twice. Oh yeah. But I'm saying, I think you have to look at specific episodes and stuff like that because while it is different, look at what the Russos did. So it's true, not, you know? So I'm saying like, could you not give a, a, a really big budget film to, let's say a Vince Gilligan to a Peter Gould? You wouldn't do such no, thing like that? No, you're right. You're right. You know, but it's, the, but that's the thing is there was enough of Peter Gould's, Episodes on Breaking Bad, yeah, that he directed for me, or Matt Shakeman, who yeah. direct, who was literally directing It's Always Sunny episodes. So I really dropped the ball on that one because I kind of wanted to put Matt Shakeman, but yeah, but that's what I'm saying. They're out there. You, I have got, to you I, dig a little. I deeper, have to read the if I if the name becomes so con, so current, like like just consecutive. I mean, like uh, when we were watching Gamora, yeah, and I noticed, holy crap. This one chick or this one guy has literally directed and not for nothing, the entire. You can put in that as well. You can put in. A, a I'm actually. I'm, I might. Say, I might just go that, with that'd them. That'd be your your uh, pinkies up um, induction. You know, where the, the the fancy one. But go to comicbookclick.com, guys. Every single episode of the Major Issues podcast is there. Every single article we've ever written, information about us, members of the Click, and our store at T Public, where you get to buy exclusive designs. You know, from Comic Book Click, designed by us. Uh, and help spread your fandom for a comic book click. You guys have been rating and reviewing us on iTunes. We have five stars, I believe, on iTunes with 13 reviews. It's amazing. I went back the other day and looked at it. I was so happy. My heart was super duper filled. So I think that was great. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take the moment right now because I use the Podcast Attic app. But ladies and gentlemen, you can use any app to listen to the Major Issues podcast. Podbean, the Podcast Attic app, TuneFind, YouTube, Spotify, um, what other podcast? Apple Podcasts, Google Pandora. Podcasts, Pandora. We're available everywhere. We're available on all those things. But the thing is, I think depending on which item you're listening us listening to us on, they each have a different review method or a different review process, I guess you would say. And so we have some reviews that are only on iTunes, but as I use Podcast Attic, let me see if I can find us some reviews reviews we got one here by brian meager on uh 5 17 2020 that says fun and infor- funny and informative dan i'm funny and informative you are very funny and could you pull up any itunes reviews uh, Is that possible? i can pull up uh i can pull up the the pod the uh, apple podcast reviews yeah 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 that's what i mean oh okay okay yeah we have uh let me see. Yeah, and do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It's the quickest way for us to grow as podcasters and find out what you like and what you don't. Things that get rated five stars come up 
uh, as pre- like a suggestion for people to listen oh to. So our actual, um, you know, our podcast can get bigger. There we go. Uh, we have one from a real Cree JD fifty four. George and Dan are great to listen to. Hey. They keep me interested every minute of the podcast. And if you're missing out, I am sorry for you. With the 100 emoji. Two 100 emojis. Hey, look at we that. We have 13 ratings on the Apple Podcast app. Are we five out of five? We are five out of five. Five out of five, Five baby. out of five on rating and review. Look, a fan, great podcast. Uh, Peter, oh. Peter Melnick. Good old Peter Melnick. Great discussion of the arts of comics on both the page and screen. So we have we have people. That it are... feels good. You know, we, 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 I, not, you know, not to blow my own horn, but a lot of work is done behind the scenes to try to give you guys the best possible episodes of this podcast. A lot of research is done. A lot of media is taken in. If you don't believe us, next week we'll be tackling DC Future State, which is 25, oh, 24 different comics. Each one more than one. And if you really, really, really don't believe us, then you can just head over to CVC slash uh, Patreon slash CVC Clubhouse yeah. for our fifth, ten and fifteen dollar tiers, where you can get behind the scenes looks, behind the scenes info on we all you, things CBC. We want your ten dollars, we want your fifteen dollars, but you know what? We want your we company, gre- but we're also not greedy. You can pay as low as three dollars a month. 10 cents a day to get access to the other content that we put out, like our CBC commentaries, where you get to sit there and queue up a commentary track of me and Dan talking about uh, a movie. And it's hilarious. It's good stuff. Go there. Please support. Um, It's the way we keep our lights on here. Like I said, a lot of work gets done. Um, I have a full-time job on top of <laughs> on top of this and designing the merch for this and working on the website and being the editor for the website and stuff. So if you guys want to compensate us in any way, our five-year anniversary of Comic Book Click is two weeks away, um, which is amazing. Like I said, the podcast has been going on three years. My birthday is next month, so is Dan's. So go ahead and give us the oh, gift of reviews. Right. Share, tell a friend to tell a friend. Use word of mouth to make Major Issues Podcast the biggest thing to come to podcasts about comic books and comic book media. I've been to the future. I can't tell you how I did it, and I can't tell you what I saw, but I have a feeling that we nail that goal, and we do become bigger than bigger and larger than life. Let's see. We did it all, huh? We did our Patreon. We did. Oh, but we always want to extend the olive branch to you guys, the fan. We want you guys to tell us how you feel about these projects. Have you read Future State? Did you watch Doomed? Did you watch this version of the Fantastic Four? Write in, and you can reach us at Facebook.com/slash/comicbookclick, Instagram at comicbookclick, or use the hashtag comicbookclick to talk about the newest, hottest, latest, and greatest things to come to comic books and comic book media. We're also at Major Issues on Twitter. And like I said, comicbookclick.com. And Dan, you are? I am on the Instagram machine at Dan's Comics, CBC, D-A-N-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-C-B-C. So, yeah, he already you saw my face. Out. Yeah, you saw. I had to, I had to figure out what, what goes after <laughs> this letter. Funny. But, yes, yeah, I am funny. Dan's Comics, CBC on Instagram. And that's where I usually I will always uh, share. The comic right. book click posts on my stories. Yeah. I usually post my own nerdy, geeky memes. So come and geek usually, out with me. We're usually uh, posting a bunch of spoiler memes about whatever Marvel stroke came out. Go watch Invincible also, people. It's fantastic. Please watch Invincible. We'll be covering Invincible as well. So here, I guess that's an early warning. Uh, take it in. Write some notes because we'll be talking about it here and we want to talk about it with you guys. So make sure that you guys are ready. But next up, Future State. Whew, that's a lot of comics. But I am ready to return to that. 
I guess there's nothing else left to say, but my name is George Serrano, a.k.a. The Don. I am Dan, the comic book man. And this has been our Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four recap and review. And remember, whether there's somebody scheming behind the scenes to make sure that your content can get produced, whether you don't have the best money, the best costumes, or maybe even the best direction, remember that you still have the power to get your stuff out there. Remember to release the Corman cut. And remember, we are not all doomed because you, yes, you are worthy.